listening to The Detour, a show about people and ideas from Oregon humanities. Today on the show, we explore democracy, especially how we can participate in governing ourselves, as well as some of the challenges to doing so. On the show, you'll hear from three individuals who are involved in this process and who, in their own ways, show us what democracy means to them. Desmond Mead is a civil rights activist, the executive director of the Florida Rights Coalition, author of Let My People Vote, and recent recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant. Desmond's also a returning citizen, a person re-entering society after incarceration, who worked on Florida Amendment 4, which restored voting rights for 1.5 million returning citizens. We spoke to Desmond in October 2019 as part of our Consider This program at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Before we do anything else, I hope you'll join me in saying a big welcome to Desmond Mead. Uh, Desmond has done amazing work on extending the franchise, on making it possible for people to vote who were not allowed to vote. And I wanted to start, Desmond, by uh, by asking you, uh, like, when voting showed up for you as a meaningful activity? Like, when did voting strike you as something that mattered and that you realized you were going to be committed to? So, sad to say that... Um you know, that, that importance of voting did not really mean much to me until 2011. Um, and that was the year that um, a new administration was coming in uh, in Florida, uh, Governor Rick Scott. Uh, he just defeated Alex Sink uh, for the governorship. And the first thing, even though he didn't campaign on it, the very first thing he and his cabinet did when they got into office was to address felon disenfranchisement. And what they did was, uh, prior to him being in office, uh, Governor Chris had a, a policy that automatically restored civil rights to, to nonviolent offenders. Um, and so when Governor Scott got into office, the very first thing he did was roll back those policies. The first thing he did. The very first thing the cabinet did. And made it even more difficult for um, an individual to uh, get their rights restored. And I remember thinking, I was sitting back and I was thinking, wow. You had four politicians that had enough power to decide which American citizens get to vote and which American citizens don't get to vote, all with just a signature on a piece of paper. That all of the work that we did uh, prior to that to actually get it to a point where some folks were able to get their rights restored. And, and, and as a matter of fact, over those four previous years, over 155,000 people were actually able to get their rights restored and to see all of that get undone by just a signature of a pen on a piece of paper. And something just boiled up inside of me and said, that's way too much power for any politician to have. Whether they're Democrat, Republican, or whatever, that no four politicians should have that much power to decide how inclusive our democracy is. And, and, and when I looked at... No, he had uh, he had won his election by sixty by around sixty three thousand votes, and at that time, uh, the sentencing project, uh, in collaboration with Jeff Manza, had just recently released a study that showed that uh, Florida had over one point five four million people who couldn't vote because of a felony conviction, right? And that like that moment, I really started to understand. Uh, the power of voting and why um, eradicating felon disenfranchisement laws was so uh, important. What were, I'm, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking about voting and what it does or doesn't mean for so many people. Some people have access to it. Some people don't. Some people mm-hmm. care about it. Some people don't. Uh, it sounds like it hits you hard. 
And I'm wondering sort of where you were with either voting or thinking about politics at that time. Like, how did it suddenly arrive if it was sudden? As important as voting is, right, that's not the most important thing in people's minds, right? Because guess what? Life is. <laughs> and so you're talking about, and, and for instance, and in, in, in I'm talking as a person that's been in the criminal justice system, right? Sure. So someone that's incarcerated, when they're getting ready to be released, they're not thinking, oh my God, I can't wait to go vote. Right. You know? <laughs> what they're thinking about is, man, where am I going to live? Yeah. Uh, 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 how am I going to get money to pay bills or, or, or to get a, a cell phone, you know? Yeah. Uh, what about my transportation? How am I going to get food in my stomach? Those are everyday issues that keep pounding at the doorstep or the door of people's lives. And it drowns out the importance of voting, right? And then our work is to somehow or another bring that back and show them how voting can impact those, those critical needs that they have. But the natural need, you know, and even like even in the Bible, Jesus had to feed the multitudes before he taught them. Right. Because there are some natural needs that people have. And and we have to here's the catch. Now, we have to understand that. Mm -hmm. So we who understand the importance of voting and how critical it is. Right. We can't go beating somebody over the head with that and totally ignore the everyday challenges that they're facing. Having been incarcerated, thinking about. Stuff like, when is it possible to hold a job and what are the challenges to get a job? Or housing. How is it that, that this is the thing, that voting is the thing, that with all that stuff hounding you, that you went, this is the one that I'm not just gonna work on, but I'm gonna drive all around the state all the time, I'm gonna, like, how that? I think part of that is the transformation, right, of, thinking of voting as something that we do, right? As an exercise of democracy, how we transform from that to understanding that voting is a tool. You, you feel what I'm saying? I think so. And so when we as, as, or let me speak for myself, as a directly impacted person, right? What I look at voting as, right? is not a way to get my favorite candidate in there or somebody who sounds good in there. It's not a way to support a particular party or another. Mm -hmm. How we look at voting is as a tool to get the needs that we have, the immediate needs that we have, addressed. And I think that, that it's, a, it's, a, it's a, um, a nuance there, right? And, and I think that understanding when, at some point, when I looked, you know, Matter of fact, I could tell you the thing I thought about, that after Governor Scott you know, signed that policy into effect, and I'm mad at Governor Scott, right? And I, but I thought about it. I was like, wait a minute. If I get 1.54 million Floridians to march up to Tallahassee and bang on his door and say, Governor Scott, give us our rights back. When he look out his window, what he's going to see is 1.54 people who can't vote and he'll go back to doing what he's doing. And so I, I'm thinking this in my head. And, and so my initial thought was, okay, but what if I can just get maybe half or a quarter of those 1.54 million to get five family members or friends who love them enough to pledge to vote on their behalf and have those five family members or friends said, Governor Scott, give back my loved one the right to vote. When he opens up his window, he will see more people than his margin of victory and have to give that considerable thought. And so that got me on that path. And maybe it's worth saying, because it's possible that people in here don't know that number you're holding out, 1.54 million, that uh, as we're sitting here, over 1.4 million people uh, have regained or gained the right to vote thanks to work that Desmond is doing in Florida. And I just want to... How do you get people who don't have... How do you get people who don't feel it to feel it and show up? Ha! Easy question. Thank you. 
<laughs> Talk to him. Talk to him. Talk to him. Let me tell you. So my wife ran for office. I remember she gave me a walk list, right? And she put me to work. And typical walk list that you would go into the community, you would knock on this one door, you will walk past about a good seven or eight houses and knock on another door because these walk lists are all with who? The super voters. Mm. And so we walked past 30, 40 voters to talk to one. Mm. Every one that we talked to, we ignored 30, right? <laughs> and then we have the audacity to, well, people don't show up. Uh-huh. How can they show up? We, we, we're not even talking to them. Mm. We're not. And so let me tell you, in our campaign, when we said we're talking to everybody, from zero on up, and we were really playing around with the zeros. <laughs> we love the zeros. When we looked at the people who we talked to that had at least one returning citizen in their household, yeah. the turnout rate was 82%. All right? And so people come out when you talk to them and you give them something to come out for, right? Something that's not fickle. And they're less likely to come out for a candidate than they are for someone who they love. And that's why I told people the date, the, the, the Sunday before election, I said, listen, some people, some diehard uh, progressive folks got mad at me when I said this, that the most important person on the ballot was not named Andrew or Ron. The most important person on that ballot was named Pookie and Ray Ray and Shaniqua and Desmond and Neil. And that's what showed. That's what showed. And so if we can have conversations with people, because sometimes we put barriers out before we even launch our campaign to limit who we can talk to and who can talk to us. If we remove those barriers and just go out there and have conversations with folks, we see a different outcome. Even when you looked at the, some of the people or the voters that, that Trump inspired that came out, right? We can't, I can't even get mad at them because we've been ignoring them. Mm. And so when we ignore voters, and, right, then we leave open the opportunity of somebody coming to speak to their needs and their fears, mm -hmm. their desires. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. Because mm. we ignore people. So you want to connect? Man, let's have those conversations. And let's not say, oh, well, we can't go in that neighborhood. Or we can't talk to that type of person. No. Two months before the election, we held our last focus groups. And we brought a bunch of conservatives, white conservatives, in a room. Uh, a lot of them strong Trump supporters. And we showed them some videos, uh, commercials that we created. And these were the commercials. We said, if you vote yes on Amendment 4... MS-13 is going to invade Florida, rape your women, and kill your children. Another one said, if you vote yes on Amendment 4, it would deal a fatal blow to Donald Trump, and those doggone progressive devils are going to take over this beautiful state of ours. After we showed those horrible videos, I mean, I almost started to believe that, right? It was so real. I was like, really? They're coming, you know? But after they showed those videos and we polled the people, we had a supermajority support for Amendment 4. Mm. Just think about that for a minute because I think we cracked the code because typically we worry about that white, that white guy living in Appalachia that will vote against welfare even though he's dependent on it, voting against their own self-interest. And here was a case where we made a very compelling argument around political, around racial lines, and these people had held steady in support of Amendment 4. Mm. Why? Yeah. Because we didn't organize a campaign with an opponent. Mm. We organized around the campaign around love, someone that you love. Mm. And so when those people seen those commercials, they was able to withstand all of those triggering images and phases because at the center of their mind was not Black Desmond, but maybe their son who's the opioid addict. Mm. 
or their uncle who's an alcoholic that keep getting those DUIs, you know, or, or, or someone that's a meth head, or someone that whatever mistake they made, that's what they held on to for dear life. And they was able to withstand that. And that's why on election night, I tell folks that those 5.1 million votes that we got was not based on hate or fear. They were based on love. Mm. And so the world actually got to see love winning the day. Mm. Really did. So on a a much broader uh, scope, my next mission is actually to to make voting exciting again and increase levels of voter participation. That's on a broad level. On a micro level um, is to use Florida as a testing ground to demonstrate the power that black and brown communities have always had but didn't realize that they did, right? Um, you know, I could give you a good example. I'm gonna give. Can I give a couple good examples real quick? Please. Right. Quick, quick. I'm gonna try. I love stories. But for instance, we have a, a, a district in the city of Orlando, right? And this district is a very important district where it's one. Of, it's the richest district in the city. Uh, they have all of the major stadiums there, the universities there. A lot of money pours in, and they also have the poorest people there. And whenever you have a district where you have a lot of money coming in and poor people there, you know what happens, right? With that G word, right? And that district is so important that they call that district the pathway to the mayor's office. You with me? The last two elections there, the first, well, two election cycles ago, the person who won that district won by 127 votes, right? About 10% people showed up to vote. Uh, won by, yeah, 127. The very next uh, election, which was the last election, the person that won that district won by 225 votes. And the total amount of voters that showed up was 2,500. You with me? Are you sure you with me? Okay. Then this is the district that's the pathway to the mayor's office. You with me? In the last four months, my organization has registered, you ready? Over 3,000 returning citizens in that district alone. And those 3,000 people and their family members show up to this race that's coming up on November 2nd. It doesn't matter who wins. Because whoever wins knows that the only reason they get to get in there and stay in there is because of those returning citizens that covered that gap. Coincidentally, I want to say it real quick so I don't cry. It's also going to be my first time voting in that district in so many years. And see, y'all about to make me cry because... I'm not, I'm not just going to vote by myself. I'm bringing my son, two of my sons and my wife, to vote right along with me. To take a, like a, a page, taking the page out the history books back in the civil rights era when dad went to go vote, he took the whole family. That voting was a topic of discussion at the dinner table. And that's what we're gonna do. And we're asking all of our returning citizens that we registered, don't come by yourself. Bring your family member. Let's celebrate. Let's make sure that they vote. But see, what happens when they show up, it's going to shift in the power right then and there. And the people in power will have to understand, they would know, because we would demonstrate, that we're taking back the power that was once acquiesced to you. As people who've been silenced for so many years, we understand the value of not giving up our voice or our vote so damn easily that we hold people accountable and don't let them just get away with anything just because they have a D next to their name or R next to their name or that they're the color of my skin. That there's a level of responsibility that elected official must have and must adhere to or there's consequences behind it. And we have to be bold enough 
to make them feel the consequence. Desmond voted for the first time in an election on November 3rd, 2020. Danielle Allen is a political ethicist and professor at Harvard University and author of the books Talking to Strangers, Our Declaration, and Cuz. We spoke to Danielle in May 2019 as part of our Consider This series on journalism and justice at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Good evening. Uh, hello. Hello. Hello, hello. Maybe before we do anything else, let's say a big welcome to Danielle Allen. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Danielle, you have written about and worked on all sorts of things related to justice and democracy. And your most recent book about your cousin uh, is about both and about much more. And instead of diving directly into that, I wanted to ask you just to go back your first book, Mm. which is about the politics of punishing in ancient Athens. It sounds dry, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't have said that. It is. (laughs) But I wanted to ask, for someone who, with your career, you've been committed to justice and democracy, and I wanted to ask, why punishing? Like, why do you care, have you cared about punishing? It's pretty simple, and at the end of the day, I think it's the same answer anybody who writes a book gives, which is that it's something that mattered in my life. So I was a kid who grew up in Southern California. I was fortunate to go away to school to Princeton on the East Coast, big old fancy place. And my sophomore year there, I took a class on Athenian democracy. To this day, I don't know why. Like I just sort of randomly wandered into this class. The teacher was just completely magnetic and compelling, and I loved the class. But we were reading reams and reams and reams of Athenian court documents, speeches, defense speeches, etc. And after months of reading these things, in class one day, I asked the question, these people, they didn't have prisons? Because I, really, like, I was reading all this stuff about courts, and there wasn't a single mention of prisons. Hmm. And my professor said, that would make a great dissertation topic. Okay. <laughs> So that's basically what happened. <laughs> and, and it was really just the fact that I was this kid from Southern California who grew up in Southern California in the 70s and 80s, and prisons were just growing everywhere around me. And then being kind of confronted with this other world that looked so different, I was just sort of shocked into awareness in a certain kind of way. And then I just sort of deeply grateful that I had a professor who didn't say, oh, like, that's not a question that belongs in a classics department, right? But, like, registered that this kid from Southern California kind of could see something about our world that the grown-ups weren't seeing yet. And so that led me on a journey to study punishment and think about it, you know, deep in time, all of history across the globe and so forth. And then the great privilege of having done that scholarly work is that I can stand up and say, for a fact that the world has never seen a system of incarceration like the one this country has built. I want to ask a little more about moving towards cuz, I think, because in a way, even what you just said about numbers and how you came to the question of punishing sounded like it was uh, the world around you, a little bit out there, and numbers and information. And then at the same time, almost in parallel, it seems like you're having this experience with a cousin who's very close to you. So there's something slightly mysterious about all of this in the sense that, yes, I mean, my book, Cuz, is about my beloved, beautiful baby cousin, Michael, who went to prison on a first arrest at the age of 15 in 1995 in Los Angeles for an attempted carjacking. And it was just after California had passed the three strikes you're out law. And he, the carjacking was attempted in the sense that his victim wrestled his gun away from him and shot him through the neck. And on the way to the hospital, Michael confessed that he had also robbed three other people earlier that week by gunpoint. Um, So it was a terrible week of violence. There had been nothing like that in his life previously. We were all completely taken by surprise and shock. 
Um, but the result of the fact that he'd done these four things in one week is that he was facing three strikes on his first arrest. Um, so he, the judge told him that you know, if he went to trial, was convicted on these things he'd confessed to, he would get 25 years to life. And so he took a plea deal, got a sentence of 12 years and eight months. One of the phrases that stuck out was uh, that you said you and your family, as Michael became more involved with the justice system, had faith in the, yeah. in the reasonableness of the criminal justice system. Yeah. And, and that faith crumbled pretty quickly. But how did that, why faith in the first place and how did it go away? So that's another mystery. <laughs> <laughs> I truly have a hard time answering that question. You know, it's the experience of African Americans in this country is deeply complicated. And, you know, you can have deep family histories of oppression. And my dad grew up in northern Florida, which is like deep south, like it's basically the same as southern Georgia, Alabama, et cetera. Lots of lynching in his youth. It's like that's why he left the south. Like that's the story he tells about why he left the south. But at the same time, somehow he also has always had this incredibly deep love of American democracy. Mm -hmm. And how it is that a people can hold those two things together is just one of the deep mysteries of American life. Um, but we do somehow. Yeah. And so I think that somehow that love of democracy and probably partly as sort of you know, still building on the optimism of the 60s and 70s, um, sort of engagement with civil rights movement and things like that, did mean that we came into the process with Michael um, respecting lawyers, you know, respecting the idea of justice and so forth. I think the other important thing about the kind of mismatch between our expectations and what was going on um, is just that it was a point when the laws were changing really, really fast. So, you know, the three strikes you're out law had just passed. And like the fact of the matter is, if you hear three strikes you're out, what do you think? Well, yes. <laughs> and you think it takes three times right. for the law to apply. Like, it just will not occur to you intuitively that it will apply the first time, right? It's like we didn't go into the court proceedings recognizing that that law would apply to 15-year-old Michael who just had his first arrest. Like, we thought that law was for, like, you know, people who, like, really screwed up repeated times. Um, and relatedly, they had just changed the law to lower the age at which somebody could be tried as an adult to 14, six months earlier. And so, like, you know, all these changes were like a kind of earthquake deep underneath the ground of society. And it takes people longer than you'd expect to assimilate just the fact that the law has changed and that, like, your vulnerability is, like, seismically different in its proportions than it had been three years earlier. Um, so that was a part of the story, too. It's interesting sort of understanding, and then also I'm wondering about sort of what it felt like as the reality of Michael's situation emerged. You know, um, I mean, I try to convey it in the book, yeah. but it's just a sense of just repeatedly understanding too late mm -hmm. that the moment you understand is also the moment you can't do anything about it anymore. And it's a devastating feeling. Yeah. And in a way, I feel like I shouldn't be asking about it. And on the other hand, I feel like the book is an attempt to share that feeling. And for a family that was so well-equipped, yeah. better equipped to understand than almost any family I can yeah. think of in the country. Well, it's embarrassing, too. Yeah, like Does all these educated people. You know, Michael was from a family with my young dad had a PhD and a couple of teachers in the family. And so it's not as if we didn't have resources to bring to bear to trying to think our way through this process and understand it and so forth. And even so, we, you know, we never found our feet, mm -hmm. couldn't find our way through the system, figure out how to get it to operate in ways that were even decent and fair. I mean, like, you know, yes, Michael deserved punishment. He'd done something bad, and I wouldn't challenge, I don't dispute that to this day. He did not deserve 12 years, 8 months. Yeah. I will absolutely dispute that. I think there's a completely different way we ought to approach sanctions for especially juvenile offenders. There's a lot to talk about there. Um, but no, we, we couldn't find our feet. And I think there's a deep truth in that, that the criminal justice system is just opaque 
in numerous ways, and you think you're a kind of functioning, competent adult, and then the moment you get caught up in it, you're not anymore. And so recognizing that kind of you know, feature of our, our justice system, like that's not justice is supposed to do. Like justice is supposed to be one of those things that keeps people empowered and civic agents, even when you're dealing with something like sanctions for wrongdoing. So. You ask a question at the end of Cuz, which has stayed with me since the first time I read it, and I feel like I feel like it's actually become the way I think about the challenge of democracy. Hmm. And I want to just read it out. Can oh, we right, damage yeah. ourselves less than we ourselves are damaged? To me, that's like that's like the core right. question about democracy. Yeah, yeah. It's just the core question of life, though, too, right? Like it's the hmm. core question of any family. Right, every family has the stuff the previous generation did to each other that the kids were caught up in, and the kids were damaged and suffered in various ways. And so, somehow or other, because at the end of the day, here we all are on this planet trying to flourish, right? Just trying to flourish, like flowers blooming or anything else growing, trying to be whole and healthy in the thing that we are, the kind of creature that we are. And to have that, you somehow have to resolve the damage from the generation that precedes you, right? You have to sort of free yourself from it. And I think that sort of picture of life in a family is the same as the picture of life in a democracy. So I'm optimistic about democracy just because, you know, like I've like pushed and pulled the question of like, how do you build worlds where human beings can flourish? It doesn't matter like how I push it and pull it, the answer always comes out the same way, like that it requires democracy. This is where like, okay, nothing that I say makes any sense if you can come up with a better way of organizing human life than democracy. Okay, so I just wanna say that. It's like if you have something better than democracy, then you do not need to agree with anything that I say. <laughs> but if you don't, <laughs> okay, then the following things pertain. So democracies die unless you can maintain unity. Well, what does that mean? That was super abstract. What that means is to have a democracy, you have a process where in every decision, somebody loses, right? Always, there's always a loser. We focus on the winners, but there's always a loser in every decision. and. When there are losers in a world that isn't kind of focused on how you get unity out of that mess, eventually you have secession, civil wars. You know, that happened here, but it's happened all over the world, not just here. Democracies break up. The greatest weakness of a democracy is its tendency to break. And that's kind of straightforward because like, who wants to lose? Yeah, it's a bummer. So at the end of the day, democracies can only endure if losing isn't that bad, which means you have to have what the novelist Ralph Ellison called, you have to recognize that democracy is a winner-take-nothing project. All right, so what does that mean, actually? It means a couple of different things. So Mitch McConnell, for example, um, talks about politics in a completely different way. That won't be so, he doesn't agree with me. <laughs> his picture of politics, like so his mantra for politics is winners make policy, losers go home. That's a recipe for breaking democracies. The mantra should be winners get the leadership role in a policy process that includes losers. Okay. But that means you actually have to be committed to concepts of compromise. You actually have to be committed to concepts of partial victories, of leaving some stuff on the table but getting some of the stuff that you want. Those are hard commitments to maintain over time. And so, yes, at the end of the day, if you want to preserve democracy, you have to choose unity. You have to make the we. When you just said, you have to choose this, you have to choose this, there are other imperatives driving people's choices and their sense of attachment. Absolutely. And I guess I want to ask, how can a principled commitment to the idea of democracy 
compete with some of the other allegiances we feel so strongly? So that is a great question, and that does come back to this um, just deep conviction I have, again, about democracy as what enables flourishing. So again, I know these are sort of abstract words, and how do they connect to my cousin Michael, who didn't flourish ultimately. This country failed him. He made bad choices, but it is also the case that this country failed him. And the thing, I guess, is for me, it's just that I want a country that doesn't fail Michaels. Yeah. And I don't actually think I'll get that country by killing democracy. So even though I really, 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 <laughs> really, really, really feel really angry yeah. at the people who passed three strikes laws yeah. and people who still defend them in some contexts, I can't let that anger drive my yeah. politics because if I do, I risk losing the thing that I think could help the Michaels of the future. In June 2021, Danielle announced an exploratory campaign for governor of Massachusetts. Jesse Beeson is a voting rights activist and executive director of Northwest Health Foundation in Portland, Oregon. He serves on the board of Proteus Action League, Oregon Futures Lab, and Oregon Public Broadcasting, and is a graduate of Neighborhood Partnerships Future Leaders Initiative and fellow of the German Marshall Fund of the United States. We sat down with Jesse in September 2021 at the X-Ray FM studios in Portland, Oregon. Personally, I came to care a lot about voting and democracy from one of my earliest political heroes, Barbara Jordan, who was a congresswoman out of Texas, served in the, the 70s during the impeachment hearings, and she was also a lesbian. And she just talked so eloquently about democracy and the franchise, the, the right to vote, and it instilled in me a, a early belief in the power of democracy and the power that voting is. You say you came to care about it because of what Barbara Jordan said. Maybe can I just ask, how did she, like, how did you land on Barbara Jordan as a hero of yours? It's not like they were teaching that in the suburbs of Denver. It was in college when I was in a rhetoric of women class and came to find her work. And, you know, you're 18 and you know you should vote, but you don't really haven't really been given the tools, I think, to examine uh, democracy in, in, in its philosophical sense. And so she just had a way of explaining it. And that really resonated for me. And one of the quotes that sticks with me uh, that she said is, you know, what the American people want is simple. They want an America as good as its promise. Mm. And to me, that's just stuck with me and it's motivated me about uh, engaging in, in the work, the hard work of democracy. And now in your work, do you feel like you're trying to help people understand that voting is important? Yes. How do you do that? I think it's a challenge right now because I think for a lot of folks, they see that we haven't really solved a lot of problems facing this country and facing the world even. And so it's hard to believe that voting would help solve those problems. And I will also say uh, for a growing segment of our of our state and our country they don't really see themselves and their experiences their communities their identities reflected in elected officials either running on the ballot or currently in elected office so that can also be a challenge when you think none of these folks know my life have any relationship to my community and so why would i want to fill in a circle for any of these people running so in a way i feel like you've already talked about two challenges mm to voting, one being, uh, well, look what people voting has gotten us so far. Mm -hmm. So a kind of skepticism about the possibility that voting will improve conditions. Mm -hmm. 
And the other one seems to be, well, look, the people that are in office, they don't know who I am and what my life is like, a kind of non-reflective or non-representative democracy. Mm -hmm. Can we stay with challenges a little bit? Mm -hmm. Like, what do you see as the obstacles or the challenges to higher turnout, more participation? I think, one, seeing more folks that have the same lived experience running for office. I think it's it's important that people who want to solve poverty actually know what poverty feels like. And we've got very few candidates that understand that. I mean, name the issue. We have very few lived experience folks, right? What we have is a lot of storytelling where people's perception is driving public policy and decision-making, right, by electeds. And so I think that's one of the challenges. Mm. I think a second challenge is just the the nature of how we engage right now folks in democracy. It has been recently primarily driven by television ads and postcard mailers, right? We're not actually having uh, face-to-face conversations with with folks about the issues that they care about in their community. And we also live in a country that's dominated by a party system and people are very disillusioned by that system. Uh, and so they don't want to engage. And we haven't invested as much in the kinds of community-based organizations that traditionally provide political homes, if you will, mm-hmm. for people that don't identify with a party, right? So you want to you wanna be involved and in old days, maybe it was your church or other sort of civic groups. And now we don't have as many robust community-based organizations that are regularly engaging people in topics of democracy, not just voting, right? But all the other ways that democracy really matters. Do you think 18-year-olds, I'm going to ask you to just generalize, 18-year-olds in this country, Mm -hmm. um, how does voting show up? Like, do you have a sense of what we're doing to prepare young people either to step into voting or not? I think we're doing very little when it comes to public education side around understanding democracy. But I don't know that that, even if you did that well, that that would solve it. If you're an 18 year old and you see a country unwilling to do anything about the future of the planet Mm -hmm. and therefore your own future, it's really hard to jump right to the idea that voting in my school board election is going to matter. I think there's a lot of anger and sadness and feelings of betrayal by young folks because of our inability to solve so many problems and to actually make it harder for this generation to live and thrive and survive, make it harder for them to actually be healthy. We're looking at lower life expectancies for this generation than previous generations, and that's the first for this country. So I think that I understand (laughs) all of the angst and mistrust that uh, folks would have in in voting. What kinds of organizations help people understand how to get involved and why it might be of interest to them? Where I feel hopeful about getting more and more folks involved and engaged in democracy is through the community-based organizations that are increasingly weaving together what it means to support your community through the helping provide the the services that that folks need housing services social services all of those things but weaving those together with opportunities for folks to become more involved involved in the organization but also involved in their community and that leads to a greater sense of belonging and actually to steal john powell's quote a sense of belonging is the greatest gift that we give one another in a democracy and it's fundamentally the base requirement (laughs) to feel like uh, that you're part of something and i think that part is necessary to actually make voting last if you've ever needed public assistance right if you've ever needed like food stamps there's two different ways to get food stamps right you can go into a state-run office and you know, take a number and go through a very horrible, terrible experience, right? It feels demoralizing. It's probably a terrible office. You can also get signed up for food stamps with a community-based organization, right? Who is asking you what else your family needs and also sharing like, oh, by the way, we are also having this meeting for parents of young kids to learn more about 
what it means to be entering kindergarten. And then from that example, right, you identify parents that are like kind of interested in being more involved in that program. And then they get more, they're coming to the after school programs and they're talking to other parents. And all of a sudden they see themselves as, as having a community that they didn't all the way see themselves having. They're making connections, they're making friends. And then the organization is also talking about upcoming election with school board members. And all of a sudden, you know, maybe it's a Latinx serving organization and there's now a school board member who you might even know because they've been at the community meetings, right? And so then you're like, oh, I really like that person. Like, I want to see them. I don't know what a school board is, but I want to see them get elected. So then you are helping them, you know, all of a sudden you're door knocking or you're uh, texting your friends or you're giving them 25 bucks. So the, the, that progression of feeling more and more involved and connected to a community that cares about you is the kind of work I'm talking about. It doesn't happen in like three months time, right? But that's the kind of thing that we've lost as a country, right? Where people don't feel as connected to one another and they don't feel like uh, their neighbors care about them. And it's palpable, right? That, that we're not a country that cares for one another anymore. And so um, these organizations, the organizations that we like to fund at my day job, uh, the foundation, are all are trying to do that. They're trying to build that sense of community and that sense of belonging that leads to a greater sense of uh, civic engagement, if you will. What are the biggest reasons to vote, given the difficulties you've laid out? Why vote? When we think about the opportunities in this country and the problems that we face. Almost all of them can be traced to decision-making that rests in elected bodies. So if you care about climate change, if you care about uh, making childcare affordable, if you care about the cost of healthcare, if you care about reproductive health and that healthcare access, it all comes down to public policy that's decided by elected officials. And so you're not, we're not going to get different decisions if we don't change decision makers. It, to me, it's a lot easier to change the decision maker than to try to convince the existing decision makers. Oregon's a blue state. People seem to pay more attention. The media pays more attention. There's a lot more money thrown into the national stuff. Is there an argument for, in Oregon at least not paying attention to the national and really just focusing almost exclusively on the local? Or is, is that missing something big there? I would say in Oregon, there's plenty of attention on the national. A lot of money leaves the state to support national races. I think, if anything, when we say we are a blue state, we don't actually pick apart what that means. Mm-hmm. So if you measure it by who's in the legislature and in statewide office, I see why people refer to us as a blue state. But I think if you ask black ninth grader at Newburgh High School, he does not feel like Mm -hmm. right now that he is in a blue state. I think if you ask a Warm Springs tribal representative going to school in Jefferson County, I don't think they feel like it is a blue state. I think if you ask undocumented farm workers who are working in 115 degree weather in wildfire smoke, I don't think it feels like a blue state. And so to me, I think we have to be not red and blue, but about a set of values that we want to see reflected in our public policies that ultimately I think the majority of Americans do want to believe that we live in a kind and a decent country. But I don't think we realize that To me, our governments are the extension of the values we want to have as a country. Voting is part of expressing those values. And when we don't treat each other well through our public policies and our public programs, we're really saying we betray our values. So I think you ought to vote at every level, right? And I think that folks have an opportunity to spend a little more time than they currently do getting to understand the various levels of government that are at work in their daily lives, trying to understand how they could better reflect the society they want to see. Throughout this conversation, I've been thinking a little bit about my brother 
mm. who's uh, younger than me and for and like me is a white guy mm. went to college that our parents paid for so we didn't carry debt out of college and through his 20s and 30s he didn't think it made sense to vote mm. he didn't see that there was anything that his vote would do if you ran into that guy would you have anything to say to him Voting has never been about an individual act, right? D democracy is about a, the summation of people. The society that we are and create is about the summation of its people. So it's not about your brother voting or not voting. It's about your brother feeling that there is a responsibility and a right to express his opinion through the ballot box and many other avenues that one has for participating in democracy. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. We are a people in search of a national community. We are a people trying not only to solve the problems of the present, unemployment, inflation, but we are attempting on a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are attempting to fulfill our national purpose to create and sustain a society in which all of us are equal. That was Barbara Jordan at the Democratic National Convention in 1976. You can listen to all three conversations and Barbara Jordan's speech in full through the link in our show notes and on our website, OregonHumanities.org. The Detour is made possible by Oregon Humanities' partnership with the National Endowment for the Humanities. You can support this show by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Adam Davis. Our producer is Kieran Bond. Our editor and engineer is Dave Friedlander. Additional thanks to Ben Waterhouse, Alexandra Bugden-Powell, and Karina Brisky. Thank you for being with us and see you next time. Yeah.